This podcast is recorded on the traditional and unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, Tsleil-Waututh, and Coquitlam peoples. British Columbia, I've seen your mountains high, seen your pretty rainbows and your blue crystal skies, watched your winding rivers as they flow around the bend. To me, you're not a stranger, you'll always be a friend. Coming to you from the West Coast, this is Politicos. Today is November 4th, 2022. I'm Scott Lundeboom. And I'm Ian Bushfield. On today's show, we're normalizing the notwithstanding clause, but first, we catch up in our BC corner. Let's do a little shout out to our patrons and our Patreon at patreon.com slash before we get into the main show. One of the things we asked our patrons is what do they value about supporting the show besides just getting to listen to us? And the Slack channel came up and not just that, but the idea that you can have a conversation with people and enjoy this community in a deep and meaningful way. Like people don't necessarily get what our Slack channel is. We mention it, but it is, it is a community. It's a social network of people who like the show and like talking about local and provincial and Canadian politics. <clears throat> so get in there. Throw us one or two bucks a month and we'll add you to the Slack channel. You just have to download the app. I know a lot of other podcasts use Discord. It's kind of like that, but we can add more emojis and reactions. So it's funnier. Yeah, I also find like the organization. Uh, I thought I like Slack's organization a little better than Discord. So works well for me t- on that too. But yeah, it's a great place to kind of chat in depth about uh, politics uh, as well as random stuff like movies tv uh we even have a plays channel for all of the uh covid updates and whatnot that uh, unfortunately seem to be going on but hopefully that gets used less and less going forward yeah we had a great live stream channel for live chat channel for municipal election night we'll do that again whenever the next election comes up that's worth doing a live discussion probably i don't know when anyway Support us, get access to that. We'll be rolling out new things to encourage more patrons in the future, but we're still figuring that out, including our format. So let's jump into the show and start here in British Columbia, as we might do going forward. We'll see. We're playing around with the format. We'll have our new premiere on November 18th. That's the official David E.B. swearing in date. Cool. Uh, it's a Interesting that it is happening on November 18th because the leadership race wrapped up in its uh, unique, shall we say, way back, uh, was it like October 19th ish, right around there? Uh, so, this is one of the longer transition periods, and it's notable for that, particularly because uh, during the leadership race, one of the main EB gas was him saying how frustrated he was that there was an opponent because he just really wanted to get to work being premier. And now he's taking his sweet time actually doing the transition, taking nearly a month, which was twice as long as it took uh, Christy Clark to take over from Gordon Campbell. And Christy Clark had the uh, other unfortunate uh, complication of not having a seat in the ledge when she did. So it just raises a bunch of curious questions about why EB was apparently in a giant rush two months ago and is now eh, just kind of sauntering towards 
the premiership. The other thing the opposition, both the Liberals and the Greens, are yelling and screaming about is that the NDP has cancelled next week's, or not next week's, the following week's sitting. So the ledge isn't sitting next week, the 7th till the 11th. It's a break week for going and talking to constituents. But they were set to sit from the 14th to the 17th. And just yesterday afternoon, they had telegraphed that they were going to do this. Uh, they introduced a motion in the legislature to cancel uh, that week and to postpone it. Uh, a little legislative brouhaha erupted when the NDP didn't have enough MLAs in the chamber to win the voice vote of should this pass or not? And the speaker actually said the motion failed. And so they had to call for division, scramble all their <laughs> caucus members in and run the vote again, where they managed to pass it 44 to 23. So just embarrassing. And as Rob Shaw puts it, sloppy. <laughs> it, it, they, like, they, they seem to be losing their edge. Like, this, they wouldn't have done something like this, uh, you know, in 2018 when they were fresh and new. Well, you have to remember at that time, it was such a narrow vote margin that everyone had to be in the chamber at all times. So with a majority right, government, it's like a little bit easier to say, all right, not everyone needs to be there for every vote. But yeah, they didn't have enough people to yell louder than the opposition, which is just embarrassing. But it's the kind of embarrassment that does actually happen to a lot of governments frequently enough. It's if they hadn't got their... MLAs into the chamber for the division vote, that would have been really embarrassing. I think the bigger question, though, is around this, does it need to take so long? We saw Liz Truss installed as Prime Minister in the UK without cancelling sitting days. Um, and then uninstalled. Yeah, and uninstalled. In, in like, the spe in, you know, and Rishni was it, she was in for 40-something days, and it's taking Evie, like, 30 to, to take over after winning the, well, winning you can put that in quotation marks if you want the uh, the leadership race I, the other half of this is it's rich for the bc liberals to be decrying a lack of sitting days when they especially under christy clark would just cancel entire fall sittings and just had like record short sitting periods like they sat for like 30 days some years and so in some ways like one week off is not a big deal in the grand scheme but also like Come on, guys. Yeah, like it, it's entirely fine for legislatures to adjust their sitting days, particularly when you are doing transition periods and whatnot, or where there's unusual circumstances. I mean, this is, but the actual like complaining about it stuff, this is just like typical politics stuff. It's the sort of thing that makes people cynical about it is that uh, parties seem to discover new principles of how governments should comport themselves depending on whether they're in opposition or in government and it's annoying it's cynical it uh makes people roll their eyes at politics but it is absolutely just par for the course well the ndp is still dominant in bc the other big <coughs> bit of inside baseball news we got this week was the third quarter fundraising. We got numbers federally. They're pretty boring other than the fact the green leadership race is kind of a race, but also no one's really raising that money. So we're not going to talk about it. Here in BC, the BC NDP raised almost a million dollars. The Liberals had about 350,000. The Greens, 185,000. And the BC Conservatives, 16,000. 
I think the number of donors is a little more interesting. The NDP had 23,700 donors. A big chunk of that would be people who signed up for the leadership race. By comparison, in 2021 and 2019, the party had 7,000 donors in Q3. I don't compare to 2020 because of the election then. So this tells me those estimates and those leaks about how many members Apadurai and EB were both signing up are probably true, although we'll never know the exact breakdown. But lots of members for the NDP, 23,700. The Liberals had 1,800 donors. The Greens had 2,100 donors, more supporters who were just giving less. Uh, and the Conservatives had 150. That, Those are some bad numbers to the Liberals. Yeah, very bad numbers. Like the fundraising is... Like it's, you're, they're closer to the, the Greens, which have two people, than they are to the uh, NDP, which is not a great spot to be in. And... <clears throat> From what I heard, after uh, Andrew Wilkinson took over the party, basically put zero effort into retooling their fundraising, which is kind of nuts because it, obviously they needed to rework their fundraising system back in 2018 because not only were they not in government, so they can't couldn't count on the benefits that come with just being in power and the money that flows from that, but there were new rules. And yet how the rules change how you play the game and they never really changed how they play the game that much on that. So like, in some ways it's not a surprise. Now, <clears throat> uh, Falcon's been in for a couple quarters now and you would have hoped that he would have at least done some of the work on it, but it is like, just a sign that, that the party's not doing well internally, that they haven't been able to rework their fundraising apparatus and <sighs> get you know, do more work on like generating those small dollar donations that actually form the backbone of a lot of uh, fundraising now that uh, the caps are relatively low at uh, it's about 1300 roughly. I think just the change every year on account of inflation, but roughly around that uh, is the current uh, cap. And yeah, you just actually need to do that. And the liberals, as far as I can tell, have just never set up that, which is in some ways, good for me because i don't get flooded with those really annoying hyperbolic fundraising emails but, but those emails work yeah they do work i mean i think they're bad for democracy and there's probably a larger conversation to have about whether the shift from uh or the shift to small dollar donations is actually a net negative because it uh incentivizes the parties to maximize outrage continuously in order to generate a continuous flow of small dollar donations. Yeah, the federal, like conservatives but, know how to fundraise in small dollar donations. We can look at the UCP, we can look at the federal conservatives, we can look at any number of other examples across the country, but they've not imported that knowledge into the BC liberals. Even the federal liberals know how to do it, but the BC liberals aren't getting any of that talent or knowledge or bringing it in and that's like kind of shocking at this point yeah and like they're milking the 1800 donors they have for pretty good amounts to get those numbers but like you can see on these the greens have 300 more donors <laughs> so the liberals aren't turning their votes into donations like the only reason the liberals would be healthier is because of the per vote subsidy that means they got more votes than the Greens by a lot, so they're getting a top-up on top of that. Maybe that's making them too complacent. I don't know, but they need to work hard from here. <laughs> sure do. Well, 
well, a group that is going to be a little more flush with cash going forward are doctors here in BC as the government has struck a new deal with the doctors of the province to change the payment methods for them that's going to result in a fairly significant increase in uh, how doctors are compensated, moving rather from a, a flat fee of 30 or $40 a visit for a GP to one that's based both off of uh, how long doctors spend with patients as well as uh, how many patients they see a day. And roughly this is expected to change doctors' compensation for a year up from about 300000 to closer to about three hundred and ninety five thousand yeah numbers in the vancouver sun say if your full-time family physician works 1680 hours and sees 1250 patients with average complexity and has 5000 visits a year they'll earn three hundred eighty five thousand dollars under the new system compared to 250 under the current fee-for-service model now it's worth noting that the costs of running their office have to be deducted from like they have to pay their staff, the building that all the taxes out of that. So yeah, this is gross. Yeah, this is gross revenue for the doctor's offices. And they're often like structured as yeah, sole so that'll eat up 30 or, to 40% of that income. But it is an it is yeah, a raise so this is not in many ways. Or, or, yeah. uh, the model yeah. is complicated. I did have the structure in front of me. But basically, there's like a flat amount of money there's some money, a lesser amount of money per visit, but then there's also a scale depending on severity. Uh, and so it's much more complicated, but I think it take it tries to take into account the complexities of doing family medicine. And this is getting pretty high praise from across the board. Um, it's something that I don't think has really been done in Canada too much, but the strongest critiques, the BC Greens who've been calling for some kind of major change for a while and the BC Liberals have offered is, why did this take so long? And there's not enough metrics to know that this will work, which, but they're not, they're, yeah, yeah but mean, they're, they're also not fair. criticizing the substance of the, it, which is kind of telling. I mean, I think the bigger problem is, yeah, you can change the compensation and that's going to help, particularly the relative balance between uh, the number of GPs versus specialists in the system by changing how the uh, the fee structure is. You're probably well on the margin shift people backwards uh, working as GPs. That said, still seems to me the bigger problem is the pipeline for new doctors to come into the, the province and practice medicine and get the training and all that. And that really still needs a lot of work around both credentialing uh, doctors who got their training elsewhere, as well as increasing the number that are getting trained here in BC. And until that gets solved, I don't think we're really going to see the everything work out. Uh, sure. Well and I think should. everyone has acknowledged there's no quick silver bullet on this family medicine crisis, right? You're, there's no one policy that overnight it's all smooth. What this compensation change does is alleviate a lot of the frustrations the doctors associations were having and give some certainty that if you're a GP right now, you're not looking elsewhere. You're not going to quit. So we're going to stop the bleed of doctors leaving family practice either to go to other countries, which I've seen in my own family doctors several times and or move to other fields of medicine, etc. 
And it will also potentially entice doctors to come to BC from other provinces. Uh, longer term, yes, let's get more med schools built as have been promised. Let's get things moving. Let's, you know, ease those credential burdens. I think a lot of that is being worked on and I'm sure there's reasons it's slow, but yeah, it's a multi-pronged challenge and it's good to see a major step finally taken towards solving it. One of the other big wins for the provincial government in the last month has been labor peace. Uh, unlike Ontario, which we'll get to in a minute, the NDP has been racking up deal after deal with public sector unions. Uh, through the summer, things were getting a bit tense. The BCGEU started moving towards job action, notably at BC Liquor uh, distribution facilities. And for a brief period, we were under alcohol rationing at BC Liquor stores, not the private stores because they couldn't control that. Uh, but it was more an uh, effect on wholesale purchasers like restaurants and stuff. You could still get a good amount of beer at a time. All of that is done, though, as deal after deal has been struck, first with the Health Employees Union, then on October 17th, the BCGEU signed its deal and ratified it. And on October 31st, the BCTF, the teachers, announced they have a tentative deal, which is going to a vote of their members pretty soon. The G BCGEU one was really interesting as the members of that union, I think, only voted about 52% in favor of it, which is kind of an indictment on how well labor leadership did in getting something there. But I guess really good for the province. If it's, you know, we convinced a bare majority, like if if it was a 99%, they probably gave too much. But from like a rational choice theory, they cut it as cheap as they could. <laughs> yeah. So in that case, uh, there's a 25 cents an hour flat wage increase plus uh, 3.24% in the first year and up to uh, 6.75% in the second year and 3% in the third. So it, second year, that's a fairly significant increase. Um, although when you factor in inflation, that probably puts the whole thing short term, probably close to a net uh, loss in real earnings, followed by kind of a catch up. Mm -hmm. We don't have to see where inflation goes over the next couple of years to, to really get a sense of these. But I think once you start turning these into real amounts, it's looking like the overall the compensations holding pretty and that's where terms. I think the frustration in that vote you can see is right because two years ago two percent is what everyone was hoping for uh, but then inflation hits five six seven percent and people start to realize if your wage doesn't go up by at least that you're getting a real cut in your salary so the salary isn't keeping pace with inflation you're losing money, right? You aren't able to buy as much. And particularly in the public sector, they in many ways lead the wider wage step. Or we lose people to the private sector if they're keeping up and raising wages faster. Uh, the teacher's deal isn't pitched in terms of percentages. The BCTF tweeted it out in terms of you might make up to ten to $13,000 more after three years with this deal. And looking at how much teachers make, they've also eliminated some salary scales. It seems like it's also going to be around where inflation will be over three years, but it's hard. Like you said, we don't know. Uh, the teachers also notably 
didn't come to a deal with the province on some of the controversial language that was initially struck by Christy Clark and then found to be unconstitutionally removed uh, a few years ago around class composition and sizes in the contracts. So that's still an outstanding issue between the teachers and the province, which it's kind of notable they didn't manage to get that resolved. I think the province really didn't want to deal with that because it would mean having to hire more teachers and spend more money. But overall, just the story of like deal after deal getting struck is a pretty big win for the province and one that even if not every worker is super happy with, at least there's labor peace here. Yeah, and that also shores up the NDP's flank in that by keeping these roughly to where uh, inflation is, they're also going to be able to maintain a pretty level fiscal situation and not really uh, see their expenditures skyrocket as a result, which is going to give less uh, ammunition to the uh, the liberals on that. So yeah, overall, it seems to be a fairly well executed uh, set of deals on the NDP's part. Uh, Again, labor peace are not given of away course, if more than they had to. Wages do stagnate or don't increase in real terms uh, versus inflation. The people will be worse off in three years, and that question around affordability becomes even more acute, which is what the NDP's like core has been. And so, if life is getting harder because you aren't making more because the government refuses to pay you more, uh, it could hurt them. <laughs> Politically, perhaps. Although, although there's not an obvious alternative party to no, they just stay take home advantage or they of that. Vote green. I don't know. Like the NDP has struggled in the past when they've not managed to balance that. Right? They, uh, Dave Barrett struggled with labor questions. The '90s NDP struggled with labor questions, where they went too fiscal and then lost some momentum, but then also got eaten from the other side. It just kind of eats the party from both sides. And I'm not saying there's an easy solution here, just they need to be wary to make sure they're not making people's lives worse. Uh, a way they are trying to also keep fiscal balances in check is by not doing the 2030 Olympics. I've talked about this on Canby Report with Matthew as the Squamish, Musqueam, Tsleil-Waututh, and Lilwat First Nations had come together for a Indigenous-led Olympics bid for 2030 to be held in Vancouver and Whistler again. It got the endorsements of city councils in Vancouver and Whistler and was then pitched to the province to say, hey, we need your support to help make this happen. The province didn't say much publicly until this past week when they came out and said cabinet reviewed it and went, nope, we don't want to do the Olympics. We're already doing FIFA World Cup and some other things. So too bad, so sad. Uh, so this is going to cost total of about three and a half to four billion for the uh, estimated cost of the uh, Olympics overall. And the province would have had to shoulder about a bill, 1.2 billion in direct hard costs. And there'd be another billion dollars in risk, um, on that. So we're looking at potentially at like 2.2 billion dollars of expenditure, uh, by the liberals or sorry, 2.2 billion dollars of expenditure by the province. 
I think a little bit of this has to do with that they're a bit gun shy after the uh, whole debacle with the museum replacement, uh, and they're not they're looking to avoid any other potential boondock rules, which Olympics have in the past certainly uh, resulted in. I was kind of hoping we'd get another Olympics here, but I also completely understand the desire not to throw that kind of money around. And there, yeah, absolutely is a pretty reasonable point of view that uh, for that fairly significant amount of money, there there really does need to be a strong case for it to be benefit in the province overall. The province is going to be putting mu- that level of money behind it. And the thing that probably gets wasn't me in this story there. is like, I'm not a big, like, oh man, we have to have the Olympics and we have to have these big events and spend a lot of money because the return, I'm not always as convinced on the churn. I get there's like the 2010 Olympics did end up being, you know, fiscally positive for the city, but in many ways there were a lot of challenges, particularly around civil liberties and uh, the rights of unhoused people at the time. What's notable here is that this was an Indigenous-led bid that by all accounts during cabinet's deliberations they didn't discuss or hear out the full proposals like they didn't go back and bring further questions to the nations and it seemed to be a very closed door decision like they got the proposal they didn't really do any follow-up they'd pretty much made up their mind before you know announcing publicly i think i even saw one report that they didn't even pre-warn the nations that they were going to kill their bid um, I mean, technically, the nations could go ahead with a bid without the province, but they don't have probably the capacity to shoulder a billion dollars in liability, uh, let alone the additional funding costs. So, fair, it kills the bid. But, you know, the government talks about reconciliation here, but then when they're asked to negotiate and work towards this, they didn't fully come to the table. I'm not saying they had to take the bid and accept it, but it feels like the process was disrespectful to the spirit. Yeah, like there was a lot of framing of this, particularly in the uh, hours after the announcement had come out that this was um, somehow against reconciliation and whatnot. And that is a stretch. Reconciliation is a complicated process, and there's a uh, a lot of things, but in involved in it, but it can't be reduced to any asked for significant funding is automatically granted, and a lot of the public discourse had that tinge to it. That said, yeah, they pr- did not look like they handled the relationship aspect of it well. Um, I would go so far as to say, like the things of a blow to reconciliation overall, but it's just, you know, good to actually engage your relevant stakeholders in all of this. And it was a paternalistic approach. Didn't it was a top down. Uh, We're the senior government who knows best. And that is contrary to the spirit of reconciliation of being partners in managing and governing. It was, you know, we're big brother. We're the colonial government. We can make this decision. Now, we'll talk about in the legislation some positive things they have done. So, I don't think this like eh. destroys all goodwill, but it's hard to come out of but this I, and go like the way this was done and had, handled uh, was positive. Like the relationship 
and how they handled it was definitely bad. The if they had actively impeded as opposed to just not grant funding, I, I it would be very clearly against Rexley. It's in that awkward gray area here would be kind of my takeaway on it. Um, they definitely didn't handle it as well as they should. Not entirely convinced that it uh, that overall it's not against reconciliation. The the general decision, even if they didn't handle the uh, every aspect of it properly. Well, on the other side of the aisle, we have news this morning that the BC Liberals will be voting soon in the coming weeks on the proposed name change to BC United. Yeah, so uh, it was announced, uh, actually, while we were recording earlier, that uh, they're going to be hold- the BC Liberals are going to be holding the vote between the 13th and the 15th of this month with the results coming in the next day, so the 16th. Uh, so we won't know by next podcast, but the recording after that, we will know whether or not uh, the BC Liberals are going to really be bad BC United. for the women's basketball team known as the BC United Basketball Club, because when I search BC United, that's the top result that comes up. Uh, if these young women have their name stolen by the province, they even just go by BC United most of the time on their website. This is Google things before you choose them as a name, people. Um, but yeah, we'll find out if they're stealing young women's basketball team names <laughs> on November 16th. It's also just a terrible name for a park. Like it, it sounds like a sports team. Like, uh, you know, a, a, fo- it, a football club. It is, is a sports it team, Scott. Like That's what I now. just said. They could go for United <sighs> BC, but I guess it's too late. Maybe they chose yeah, a I bad mean, name because Kevin Falcon actually likes the liberal name yeah. and wants it to stay. And so he, they picked something bad to kill it. I feel like that's uh, a little like 10D chess. Of I don't think it matters. That I don't much think he's that kind of care on there. Also, like he campaigned on a name change. He that was one of his like big pushes at the last uh, party um, convention. Like it w- if it failed, it would actually just be a like blow to him. Uh, it makes it hard to do like a. Uh, yeah, a secret plan to actually have it fail in the PC liberal name. Well, we'll cover that once we know what the liberals have decided to do with their future. Meanwhile, I want to do a quick roundup of what's been happening in the House since we did our last regular episodes. It's actually been a pretty busy fall session. 16 bills have been introduced. Nine of them have already become law. Seven are still sitting on the order table. That's not counting the private members' bills that are also on there. Those are just going to sit at first reading. Um, Among the bills that have already become law, the Food Delivery Service Fee Act has put permanent caps on your skip the dishes fees. Seems like they're getting around that by just adding a BC fee. I don't know if the law is going to ban that extra $2 they're charging me every time I order takeaway. Uh, the Opioid Damages and Healthcare Cost Recovery Amendment Act, Bill 34, changed how we're changed some of the approaches we're using in this provincial lawsuit against pharmaceutical companies for the opioid s- epidemic. Uh, I think it's just letting us sue more people. Uh, 
Among the bills still on the order paper, the Bill 36 is the Health Professions and Occupations Act. This is at committee. It's a very big bill. It completely repeals our existing Health Professions Act and replaces it with a new structure that's been in the works for a few years. Uh, this is about how things like the College of Physicians and those other kind of health colleges are regulated. They're going, some, a bunch of them are going to be merged. There's going to be new oversight bodies, very complicated stuff and seemingly positive, all evolving out of a bunch of scandals, some of them from the fact that naturopaths regulating themselves was a bad idea in the first place. Uh, in other cases, just like self-regulatory bodies were putting the interests of the physicians over the safety of their patients in some notable cases. Um, the Bill 38, the Indigenous Self-Government and Child and Family Services Amendment Act, is another big change. This is going to let First Nations oversee children in care rather than them having to go through the Ministry of Children and Family Services. This is a very positive thing for reconciliation. This is really transferring self-governance in a meaningful way. Um, re related on the reconciliation is Bill 39, the Judicial Review Procedures Amendment Act, uh, this allows judicial review cases to include the concept of Indigenous consent. Uh, I don't know enough about law to know how that's not being included, but I guess if there's a case where the government involves Indigenous consent in its decision, that wasn't always being reflected in the courts, so promotes that. Oh, and then we're also going to have a 2.5% tax on hotels during World Cup and other international tourism events. Anything else you saw that's interesting on the order paper? Nothing that immediately jumped out. I mean, the main thing I'm watching for at this point is when does the uh, lawn anticipated and lawn teased housing bill finally get introduced and what differences there are between that and the uh, backgrounder that EB put out uh, a couple months ago during the leadership campaign? Yeah, it'll be really interesting to watch what uh, EB brings in after this two-week break as his bills and what he wants to accomplish as premier now, because here we have 41 bills because bill one doesn't count. It's a ceremonial that look to be passed. That gets them almost as high as in 2019 when they passed 44 bills. Uh, last year, the NDP passed 29. And in the first session of their majority government, they only got 11, but it was kind of an abbreviated one. So they only have a few weeks of sitting left. There's actually only two weeks. There's actually only one week of sitting left on the calendar for the last week of November. So it might be the housing bill comes in and gets rushed through in four days. Uh, or we might just be waiting for the spring for all the very interesting stuff. But that's a lot of stuff on the order paper and not a lot of time to actually get it through, assuming you want full legislative scrutiny on it and aren't rushing it through in a day or two like we just saw in Ontario. Yeah, it's going to really depend what's in the, the bill, I think, on that one. But uh, they've also been talking about it for, feels like the better part of a year now, if not longer. So it would be nice to actually just get that through. But uh yeah, we'll have to see. Let's jump into the big news of the day slash the week nationally. And that's the Ontario 
education support staff strike, the QP strike that has started today. It is an illegal wildcat strike made illegal by a bill teased and then introduced by the Ontario Progressive Conservatives that forces a contract on the union, says they cannot strike. If they do, each member will be charged $4,000 a day. And I think the union owes $500,000 a day of strike. Uh, And they can't sue because it's been notwithstanding clause out of challenges from sections 2, 7, and 15. Uh, so maybe maybe this is cruel and unusual punishment, and the smart lawyers could file lawsuits on that aspect and on those grounds. But this is quite an escalated labor battle that we haven't seen in a while. Yeah, it's certainly the first back-to-work legislation that has been introduced in Canada. What is notable is that I believe it's only the second time that the yeah, what I found has been in my in relation reading to is there was one time in the late 80s, I think it was, there was a Saskatchewan back-to-work legislation that was struck down by a lower court, and then the government just reintroduced it with the notwithstanding clause. So this is a preemptive use, which is also notable in that we didn't – it's only been in the last few years other than Quebec. Quebec is – kind of a unique situation with the notwithstanding clause um yeah in fact the, the first uses of the not yeah the, the first uses were all preemptive and it uh only kind of emerged later that it became a uh response only clause or that the norm shifted more towards being in response to judicial rulings rather than preemptive but uh that seems to be shifting I- I don't even know if how it's it was appropriate to say how it was originally done. done. It was like Quebec is a unique case because they never really signed on to the constitution and to the charter. So they're throwing hissy fits regardless. And that's what they did with the con- the notwithstanding clauses. They threw it on everything for a while because they went, we don't like your charter. We're going to ignore it anyway and do our own thing. And they have their own provincial charter that has a lot of the same clauses and protections outside of quebec it's largely been a no-no uh there have been a couple cases it's been used more recently saskatchewan used it to protect catholic schools after a lower court ruling said you can't fund non-catholics going to catholic schools that was overturned on appeal so the invocation was kind of useless uh ralph klein threatened it a couple times he threatened it to protect but, yeah, like, the province it, it, from being sued by victims of eugenics. Uh, he backed down on that really quickly because that's horrible. Uh, he also threatened to use it to ban same-sex marriage in the province, but that was deemed uh, out of the province's control because it's the federal government who defines marriage. And then it's been used in Ontario now, or at least invoked or threatened. In th- now this is three cases. Uh, it was also. Um introduced in uh, some New Brunswick legislation a couple years back uh, related to uh, a bill that would have um, removed uh, non-medical exemptions for uh, school-age vaccine requirements on there. The the bill ended up getting defeated um, in the ledge uh, and didn't uh, get enacted, but uh, yeah, it also has been yeah, the uh, Ontario ones in are New quite Brunswick, notable because they're enacted. very populist in flavor. There's no they're not like, oh, we want to debate the merits of this or really come back from the courts. The first usage, I think, and the one that passed was after a court ruling that 
granted third parties, notably unions, the right to spend during election periods. Uh, Doug Ford just notwithstanding clause away their free speech <laughs> and restricted it. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. It didn't not remove the ability of them to spend. There was a cap on spending in the pre-election period uh, that the court struck down, uh, and the use of the uh, the notwithstanding clause was to reinstate that cap. And that was actually kind of interesting in that uh, if the partisan valence had been reversed on that, I, I think you would have seen a lot of. Uh, progressives generally cheering that one on uh in a way that uh wouldn't necessarily uh or that's different than what ended up happening but you know it's election spending and rules around um what third parties can spend are you know hardly uncommon in canada and I don't know if 600,000 is a, is an inherently reasonable limit or not, but it's not out of uh, the realm of reasonable that uh, a legislature could determine that is the appropriate amount for third parties in advance of the writ period to be spent. I mean, my point is more that rather than have like a robust debate about that, Doug Ford's government just shut it down in advance of an election they were about to fight. Like it was within months. It was kind of the same as when they changed the size of Toronto City Council and that uh, was overturned by a lower court on some novel <laughs> interpretations of the charter. I thought they were fun, but I can see why they didn't hold up in appeal. And Ford also threatened to pull the notwithstanding clause in that in a very quick move, which again, seem more like striking at your political opponents than having a robust, rational debate about policy. And I think that's the challenge that we're seeing here is that the uses of the notwithstanding clause are entirely by conservatives in history. The New Brunswick example might be different, but I'm not sure about, but as you said, that one didn't go through, but they're not being used by the liberals. They're not even being talked about by the NDP. Maybe that's a tell on the makeup of our courts or the perceived makeup of our courts, but a lot of the recent court decisions, especially at the Supreme Court of Canada, are by Harper appointees. So our courts can't be said to be, unless you want to make the argument that Harper just appointed a bunch of lefties. Well, I mean, the, uh, I, I believe the current uh, Supreme Court of Canada position is. But- the talk of majority that many of the Harper era crime laws point. were struck down by Harper era appointees. Yeah, uh, yeah, some of those were, uh, but like the recent one around um, limitations on um, uh, some of them were, but uh, like the recent one that uh, got a lot of attention when the uh, the Supreme Court struck down the imposed parole limitations on the Quebec Moss shooter, for example, that was definitely a Trudeau uh, appointee majority court. It was a unanimous ruling, though. It was a unanimous ruling. So the Harper appointees on there still agree. But I think that actually kind of... Like, you can talk about who the majority is, but let's be clear in the facts. Like, there are some split decisions, but it's not like this court is hard divided between conservatives and liberals in any way. Yeah, at the moment, I, I, that is definitely the case. Uh, it would be 
good to keep it the case. And that's where I think um, having the notwithstanding clause can actually be a bit of a benefit because like a lot of these are fundamentally political questions here and a situation where, or sorry, these are going to be as political questions, they are going to be the for political contestation. And it's better that that happens and that that be contested in a legislature that's elected every four or five years than turning those uh, that contestation into a fight over the composition of the court um, and going down the American path, which I, I think we can both agree has been rather destructive uh, to the U.S. court system and having this um, pressure release valve is a better way to do that rather than turning everything into a fight over Supreme Court appointments. God, there are more examples in the world than the United States of America. Stop pointing to the shittiest run country. Maybe not the shittiest, but like there are a lot of countries that have strict limits on what legislatures can do. Because we know that tyranny of the majority is a thing. We know that legislatures can trample human rights and given that opportunity. Prior to the charter, the federal government, particularly prior to the 1960s, would regularly disallow laws when the provinces got too racist. And it's not to say the federal government was a beacon of pluralism throughout history. They just looked at some of the things that notably BC was trying to do to Chinese immigrants and people in the lands and went, that's too far. And at some point, this Andrew Coyne makes this point in his column, at some point, the federal government, if it wants to protect Canadians, should maybe step down on the provinces and say, you're going too far. And there's a strong argument, I think, that they should have gone that way when Quebec restricted the rights of religious minorities. And when they're restricting the rights of workers in Ontario, like, you can't argue Ontario was negotiating in good faith this past week, especially when they went, all right, we're giving you this contract and telling you you have no right to Yeah, we have breezed over that to jump right into the notwithstanding clause discussion itself. And yeah, like this is a a bad use in in this case of the notwithstanding clause. My point is there's not a good use or there is a theoretical good use, but I'd argue like the New Brunswick one is probably it would be an example of a didn't pass, but like it It failed on like a straight like (laughs) vote in a minority legislature didn't pass um, on that. but, you know, if it had gone through the le- legislature and, and been passed, it it would have been fine. Um, establishing spending limits uh, related to third parties is you know, a reasonable domain of a legislature on that. Um, I like the initial notwithstanding clause, like the debates around the time, it was not just the, the conservative premiers pushing for it. Like Alan Blakeney, the NDP premier in uh, Saskatchewan, uh, was one of the major proponents of the notwithstanding clause because he was concerned about a Supreme Court that took a, um, that followed after the, like the Lochner era of the US Supreme Court. It is, I think it's easy to look at who has used it recently and, take a very partisan look at that, but 
there are general reasons why having some degree of a democratic check on uh, things is not unreasonable. And there's limits of the notwithstanding clause. There, It has to be renewed every five years. So there will always be an election between its use and its renewal um, <clears throat> on that. And it's only limited to certain provisions. I'm not talking about its recent usage. I'm talking about its entirety of usage. We talk, you know, we went through the history. It's only been used a handful of times. It got used excessively by Quebec. It got mused about to restrict the rights of eugenics victims. Thankfully, it didn't get used there, but there was a purely political pressure. Like, there are, even within the common law, there are limits of what legislatures can do. And so, I can easily say Alan Blakely was wrong, and I think history has proven him that way. Uh, in this current regime, we're seeing you know, Doug Ford normalize its use, and I fully suspect that if he's successful in this next week, and if we don't see QP and the unions really just shut Ontario down to the point where they have to buckle and concede that they made a mistake here, you know, fire Stephen Lecce as education minister and just totally back down, that we're going to see more usages of it by Daniel Smith, by Pierre Polyev, by if he becomes prime minister, uh, and in lots of different ways to restrict the rights of people who are marginalized or otherwise abused by the system. And that should worry every civil libertarian or everyone who cares about fundamental human rights. Yeah, I mean, there, there absolutely is a check on it. Like, it's the political chat that you just mentioned on there. I, I do agree that I think we will likely see uh, if Pierre Polyev uh, becomes prime minister, the use of the notwithstanding clause, I think most likely around uh, issues around uh, mandatory minimum sentences on that. Um, Which is amazing because it's a policy that's really been discredited in the United States. Like that's where it started. And they've abandoned it in a lot of cases a decade ago or more because it doesn't work. It's bad policy. It's just, it doesn't, you know, decrease crime. It just scratches the like, I need vengeance itch that I think too many conservatives have because they get blinded by hatred of I mean, we're talking quote, about like the most recent example was often the Quebec mosque racism uh, on there. Like having strong, like having the legislature decide that it's the that certain severe acts and violations of uh, the law and the social order does care should be sanctioned with a proportionate level of severity. It, it's hardly an unreasonable uh, thing. Bad crimes make bad law. Don't use like single <laughs> elements to craft your justice policy. Do you think a higher sentence for murdering people in a mosque would have dissuaded Bissonette from doing his heinous act? No, he was going to do it because he was radicalized online. And that's the kind of stuff we should be going after if we want to. Once he committed the act, he, sh he in should terms have us. And he's going to jail for a very long time and now has the opportunity because our justice system is built on the idea that you can reform yourself, be eligible for parole one day. If you think people should be executed, Not just execute, say it. But like 
having a throwing someone in jail it's forever not is executing. It's a jail sentence. It's not an execution. The two are fundamentally different. <laughs> if someone dies in jail because they've been in there for 70 years, you've taken away their life. You've taken away their liberty. You've taken away Which their freedom. Which is entirely proportionate with them the alive. act committed. Then support the death penalty. I mean, the, the two are different things. Like The death penalty is irreversible in the uh, circumstances where the courts uh, convict an innocent person, whereas a jail sentence is not. And like that's a huge difference in the level of justice that the various penalties reflect. My point to come back to the main argument here is this is not a useful clause. It's not been used well in its history. And I'm very worried about the abuses that we're going to see going forward if it gets normalized, like Doug Ford is really trying so, to do. I mean, I completely agree that in this case, it's a bad use of the clause. Um, it is. Um, like the proposed deal, the uh, Ontario PCs are trying to invoke here. We're talking like a two percent um, wage increase that doesn't even match inflation. I think the eleven percent on yeah. some of the lowest paid. Yeah, workers I think the eleven percent. Yeah, you could argue that's high. That was what um, the yeah, that's what they that's were what asking. initially demanded, but they did cut that back this week yeah. too. So like you could argue and like. Doing it preemptively, doing it before there had even been a decision to strike. Yeah, they um, granted a strike vote, but like they hadn't actually proceeded to on strike. Like it was a bad decision to do that to invoke um, back to work legislation at this point before anything had been uh, actually shut down or had gone on strike. Um, to say nothing of then adding the notwithstanding clause to it. And there are likely be political consequences for invoking it um, that the just invoking the not back to work legislation and then the notwithstanding clause is probably going to add even more onto it uh, for for them. In terms of like the broader clause itself, I'm not sold on that. It's a bad thing. Uh, necessarily a bad thing that there is a release valve in the case of uh, where courts make bad decisions uh, or where uh, there is a st strong need for the uh, or the legislatures to move quickly on something that uh, in a, like an emergency situation where judicial review would generally complicate things to an unreasonable amount. Mount, like we inherited a system of parliamentary supremacy uh, from Britain when we became a, our own country, and had that through most of our history. And like the notwithstanding clause is basically a, a recognition that that did not end in uh, to, in 1998, although it had more limits than it did before, and. I think we can take issue with a lot of the uses of it, but if I don't know if we'd had a Citizens United ruling come out of the Supreme Court here, yeah, it would have been entire. It would have been good to have the notwithstanding clause, and I bet the U.S. Uh, a lot of people in the U.S. wish they had some version of that 
uh, that they could invoke uh, in response to bad rulings like that. And having it, having the final say be the courts with no option for uh, the democratically elected or democratically accountable parts of the government uh, to push back when they like clearly err uh, in that or whatnot gets stuff uh, like has its own problems that should not easily be dismissed and judicial review is good, but so is so is democratic governance and the two need to be balanced. I don't think the notwithstanding clause perfectly balances it, but it does. It is at least a mechanism in the constitution to enable that balance. And we're seeing the, the fact that the constitution is not like fixed in its understanding kind of showing up a bit here in how the, the clause is being interpreted uh, as around its use. It's up in the air how that proceeds going forward, but like as a constitutional mechanism, I think it has its merits. If it needs to stay, we need to have someone take a little bit more responsibility for it because it's being used in every instance it's been used. I think irresponsibly and dangerously and it's building a bad precedent so if we want to put limits around it fine it's a you you use it after the courts have had some chance of reviewing it and that you know this isn't just a preemptive thing and this is where i think coin's point of let's you know repower disallowance and have the federal government or have reservation be used by our lieutenant governors to say no you didn't actually listen to the courts yet we're not going to actually pass this bill and the crown then gets some power back because right now it's headed in a very dark direction and you can go oh this is a bad use of it but this is going to be the first of many worse uses yeah, I like if things go that way so i can't take a lackadaisical oh it could be used in a good situation when i can be very afraid of it being used in bad situations like I keep referring to reservation and disallowance. These are things from our original constitution, our British North America Act that say the federal government or the lieutenant governors can just basically veto laws of lower level provincial governments. It hasn't been used since about the 60s. Um, but during the repatriation of the charter, Pierre Elliott Trudeau was considering repealing them because they hadn't been used in a while. And in many ways, they're considered dead powers. But he left them when he got the notwithstanding clause in there because I think he intuitively sensed that there might be a time when it gets abused. And here is a secondary backstop that allows some adult in the room to stop and say, hey, you're trammeling people's fundamental freedoms a little too far. Yeah, I... Yeah, it's it would be a legitimate use of the Constitution and the powers in it for uh trudeau to do that i don't think it would be a particularly wise move of course Doug ford's invocation of it wasn't a particularly wise move either our invitation the outstanding clause was not a good move either but there it, it's a bit of a tricky situation on that because yeah well it's yeah fair play by the rules not doing it when Quebec 
introduce Bill 21 and doing it now, I think would supercharge regionalism in a very bad way. And like, we're in just kind of a shitty situation where there's no good outs on this beyond Ford backing down on it. Um, but yeah, one of the, one of the things that's part of the art of governing is knowing that just when you have a power, you doesn't mean you should, it's wise to use it. And yeah, it, well, I don't support the use of notwithstanding laws in this case. I think it would be, I think the federal government should be very wary of invoking disallowance in a way that is not seen to be equally applied across provinces. I just don't think Trudeau is going to have oh, the balls yeah, to that do too. it. <laughs> Mostly. Yeah, like, this is going to be something that As, could be... In, in, especially because he wouldn't do it with Quebec, but yeah, he definitely isn't going to do it ever. Solidarity with QP and education workers in Ontario. Uh, you have a very difficult fight ahead of you. Maybe they're starting a new era of renewed labor militancy. And that could be interesting to watch. So, fun times. Let's close off with two quick takes. We'll start with the fall fiscal update from the federal government. It was fine. The country's yeah, doing so there's well, a few new seems, um, all things considered. Uh, uh, and some people are getting some relief. Uh, they're changing the Canada workers' benefits to... Uh, be done in advance, which eh, I, I could see causing a bunch of problems uh, for people whose like eligibility changes during the year, and then that becomes a giant messy situation uh, the following April when people are doing their taxes. Um, so, like, there's, I'm not sure that is entirely well thought out. Um, there's a, also a bunch of uh, money for uh, green jobs for training. They're eliminating interest on uh, student loans. Uh, they're, the details aren't super clear in this, but they're looks like they're basically going to be mirroring the climate provisions in the U.S.'s Inflation Reduction Act to try and uh, level the playing field on that between uh, U.S. and Canadian uh, green tech companies. Uh on there but yeah like the overall message the government was trying to send on this is we're being fiscally responsible we're taking inflation seriously they there's i think a shift towards more talk about dealing with canada's growth and and uh, or economic growth and the lower productivity growth uh that we've seen in recent years um so that's good they're talking about it. It's still pretty vague in terms of what they're actually saying, what that looks like. And I don't know, it gets you part way there. It doesn't get you as far as things should uh, on there. But, uh, you know, you can't solve a problem if you don't identify it first. So uh, I guess partial marks there. Um, but yeah, overall, I don't think there's actually a huge amount to really take note of here beyond a few program changes and the, the student loan interest. Yeah, a lot of it was reannouncing stuff, reannouncing the double GST credit, reannouncing the dental benefit checks, which 
is the like compromise the liberals came up with to meet their deal with the NDP without actually having a real also program. Like the, uh, that program is weird. It's a mess. It's a RSP first time home virus hybrid yeah, thing. The they're saying they're going to introduce oh, yeah. legislation on that shortly. So, yeah. Like the, the workers' benefit money will help a lot of people. This is significant money to the people who need it most. This goes out to, I think they say about around 3 billion, sorry, around 3 million people. Uh, eliminating interest on student loans will save a lot of people, especially new graduates, a lot of money related to that. Uh, I think they're adjusting or flagging the payment plans don't actually kick in until you're making $40,000. So, Universities getting much more affordable. Uh, and these are, you know, they help people. They're good programs. I'm seeing a lot of, and especially the student loan interest thing doesn't actually cost that much. It's $2.7 billion over five years. There's like an initial cost to waive some of it, but then the ongoing cost is a few hundred million, which we could argue could be better spent, but we want people to get university educations and then not be like, buried in debt so pretty positive the they want lower credit card fees to help small businesses but right now that's just negotiations with like the threat of legislation um to be tbd i guess on there and to fund a little bit more they're going to tax share buybacks and implement the minimum taxation for the richest canadians which is very vague other than kind of meeting some international promises so we don't usually expect much in a fall fiscal update. Um, so yeah, wait for the spring for the real budget. Although sometimes the liberals are very late on their budgets. So yeah. The other big numbers are immigration. Yeah. So it was announced that the uh, federal government's raising their immigration targets uh, up for, uh, in the following year. So increasing uh, to 465,000 next year. Uh, last year there was 405,000, uh, people who immigrate to Canada. And then, uh, the year after, or by 2025, that number is going to increase to 500,000 per year, half a million, uh, people, uh, which is nothing. Yeah. A lot of people. Yeah, more than 1% of the population. Uh, that, which is good. I mean, we need a, a growing population. Uh, more immigrants you know, make the country stronger and everything. So, yeah, good. Uh, they're no. tweaking some of the relevant ra or the ratios between uh, some of the categories. Uh, so, well, there's a like 25% increase in total uh, immigration, roughly. Uh, the increase in family reunification is only going to climb from about uh, 106,000 up to uh, 118,000. And interestingly, the number of refugees uh, would drop from uh, 67,000 to about 63,000. 76,000 to 73,000. Sorry, did I... Yeah, so interestingly, yeah. the number of refugees were dropped from 76,000 uh, to 73,000 by uh, 2025. Yeah, it's still a, you know, a strong number for Canada where we don't share a border where we can <laughs> selfishly restrict the number of refugees who make it here. 
unlike you know Turkey has hundreds of thousands in the case of the Syrian war um we could be doing a lot more and it's actually quite surprising to me to see those numbers decline so much especially relative to the increase in overall immigration so disappointed I mean, there but overall you know I'm happy to see these numbers go up I'm sure at some point the reactionary element that's particularly vocal in parts of the conservative party is going to start pushing back on the immigration but for the most part we have a pretty good consensus around immigration in Canada. Yeah, I like to tie this back to the previous story. I I think those numbers also probably reflect uh, the liberals trying to pivot more towards a an economic focused uh position and uh policy focus going forward. Um which also probably does mean if Pierre Polyoke wins, there's going to be less of a change as now the Conservative Party is still pro-immigration by a, a wide margin, um, but with a, a preference for uh, economic uh, immigration as the, the primary focus of the Canadian immigration policy. So once again, sign of a consensus. And yeah, it's uh, I'm happy that we're like one of the few pro- countries that uh, has a broad cross-partisan consensus on immigration. And uh, yeah, that looks likely to continue in the into the future. And that has been Playtoast. Find links to everything we talked about at playtoast.ca. Support the show and get access to our Slack channel at patreon.com slash playtoast. Our intro music credit is Beautiful British Columbia by Serge Plotnikoff. Playtoast is a production of Legend Boot Media and editing services are provided by CHLY, 101.7 FM in Nanaimo. Thanks for listening.